welcome to episode 95 of Inside AgriTurf, and I'm Chris Biddle. There is some debate about its origins, but it is generally accepted that the internal combustion engine, as we know it, was the invention of Dr. Rudolf Christian Karl Diesel in 1892, with prototypes running on peanut oil. Early engines were used for stationary power plants and in the 1930s were incorporated into trucks, passenger cars and tractors. Even then, there was a myriad of fuels used by manufacturers. Kerosene, petrol, TVO, tractor vaporising oil and diesel, named after Dr. Rudolph. And it wasn't until the late 1940s that diesel made commercial breakthroughs on tractors. John Deere's Model R was one of the first in 1949. Since when, diesel has been the fuel of choice for tractor manufacturers. But despite a succession of measures to reduce harmful emissions, called tiers, starting as Tier 1 in 1996, the world is now committed to achieving net zero and in the case of the UK, by 2050. So the race is on to find alternatives to diesel in off-road agricultural settings, where substantial power is required for tractors, combines and the like. And my guest today is currently working with a number of partners to develop net-zero compliant power systems that meets the demands of manufacturers, users and environmentalists. Campbell Scott worked for AGCO, Massey Ferguson Division, for over 30 years and is an admitted disciple of Harry Ferguson's engineering principles and indeed is also looking to reimagine the iconic Ferguson TE20, the little grey Fergie, with new fuel technology. All of which sounds rather tasty, so welcome Campbell and perhaps I could start by delving into your background in the tractor business. Yes, well, I came from a, a farming background in southwest Scotland, and uh, so I spent plenty of time sitting in tractors. And then, following a stint at Silso College, which at that time was the National College of Agricultural Engineering, I started in Massey Ferguson, as it was then in 1986, as a graduate trainee. And then I spent the next um, 32 years uh, working in Massey Ferguson. Of course, it became Agco Corporation in 1995. Uh, and during that period, I visited more than 60 countries. I worked in sales and marketing and after sales. And I ended up uh, being based in France from 2010 until 2018. Uh, finally, as director of marketing, services for the Europe, Africa, Middle East region. So I had a very, a very varied career, but a very enjoyable career in, in mainly promoting the Massey Ferguson brand. Yeah, you, you weren't involved directly in the other brands under the Ag, Agco? Um, well, actually, I had a period, um, I think, in the late 90s, early 2000s, when I was head of after-sales marketing and that was actually for for all brands. Yeah. And one of the, I mean, a couple of the projects that that I did there were, of course, when we launched Agco Parts. So, in other words, instead of having Massey Ferguson parts, Fent parts, 
uh, Challenger parts, Valtra parts, etc. We we went into one brand for parts, Agco parts. But I can't. I think I think if any of my Agco colleagues are listening in, they'll they 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 might be horrified if I say that I spent too much time promoting non-Massey Ferguson brands. <laughs> ah, great. So you would have obviously been around and on that sort of seminal and nostalgic uh, time when uh, Massey Ferguson left Banner Lane. Um, oh, I would say it was the, if you leave aside, um, you know, family bereavements or whatever, it was the worst worst day of my life when, when they, they made the announcement that they were closing Banner Lane. In fact, to be honest with you, I couldn't even listen to the complete announcement. Really, um, I actually left um, after a couple of minutes. Not because you know I was angry or anything. I literally felt extremely unwell for a period, and uh, I walked outside the tower block, had a walk around, and then went back in uh, to hear the end of the story. But um, no, it was it was a sad day in my life when they when they announced that. To bring a positive to it, I was I was lucky that that. Um, because that was 2002 when the when the factory closed and it was announced to us early 2002. But then eight years later, I was asked to transfer to Beauvais in France, of course, where there were plenty of Massey Ferguson tractors coming off the production lines. Uh, uh, of course. Well, uh, I think uh, 2002, I, I understand that uh, tractors have been built there for 56 years and there's something yeah. like 3 million tractors produced. And, and at one point there were 8,000 people working So uh, in the plant. Well, when I started, I think the figure was 6,000 people. Okay. That was 1986. But of course, there had been, yes. there had been more previous to that. There were, there were three restaurants. There was a bank. Yeah, uh, there was a travel agent. Uh, there was, you know, a fire station. Uh, you know, a a, a surgery, uh, a social club, and it was more than just a, a you know, a, a production unit. It was a com a complete uh, community. Indeed, um, and you know, they never really made a bad product. So when when did you leave Massey Folk or Agco rather? Canada? Yeah, well, that was 2018. Um, they had a kind of internal reorganisation, as they often tend to do, and I think they wanted to bring a new... I, I was very much a traditional Massey Ferguson guy, and I think they wanted to bring in some new thinking. So, um, you know, by mutual agreement, I decided to pursue some other, some other avenues, um, I've no doubt that I could have looked for something else inside the company, but um, having spent so long promoting and for the last few years being in charge of the marketing of the brand Massey Ferguson, I, I didn't really want to do anything else. And so you 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 have started this this company, Atomic Tractors. As I understand it, Campbell, you, you've got two visions for the company, one of which is uh, the uh, zero emission power units for, mm -hmm. for use in tractors. And the other is, um, is if you like to reimagine the little grey Fergie, the T20 with new technology, Th does that sort of really sum up the, the visions for the company? Yeah. I mean, coming to the second one first, I was always, I would say from the Ferguson side of Massey Ferguson, <laughs> as opposed to the Massey Harris side, which was quite common with a lot of the people that were Coventry-based. And the principle that smaller and smarter is better than 
you know, bigger and more brutal, was sort of ingrained into us and indoctrinated into us. When I said the about the the you know the Ferguson T20, it was the design principles I was stressing. So in other words, that you don't need to have big heavy tractors going over the land, especially as we move towards driverless vehicles and autonomous units. We can begin to think again of having smaller vehicles, which are obviously going to have less soil compaction and generally be more flexible. Because I mean, the main reason for big tractors is because one driver can, can, can you know, can 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 be more productive. So you you know, one driver's wages are are being more productive. So it's it's the concept of being small and smart that appeals to me from the Ferguson design principles, as opposed to any specific layout of what the tractor looks like. Indeed. And and did you have the, the, the thoughts running around in your mind when you were still at Massey Ferguson? Oh. Would you see that the trends, or obviously the trends were going for low emissions and the, the gradual uh, uh, replacement of fossil fuels particularly? Yeah, I had the vision that because of autonomy and robotics, that things could get smaller again. And in fact, I think it was about 2006, 2007, we'd supported a a project that was being run at Harper Adams University. So I was quite aware of the robotic side. But on the net zero side, I hadn't really been aware of um, any non-fossil fuel solutions to that at that point. Now, when, when I was in Massey Ferguson, at one point in my history, I was the when I was in Agco Parts, I was the engine product manager. And of course, I worked closely with Perkins Engines, and I worked closely with Adco's own engine maker, which at that time was called Sisu, but later became Adco Power. And from about year 2000, we moved from what was called, were called blue engines, with no emissions control, to what we called green engines. Little did we know then that we'd be moving through then tier zero, tier one, tier two, tier three A, tier three B, and tier four. And so for the next 20 years, if not 20 years, 18 years, I was heavily involved in the the marketing and the communication of all of those changes to the engine. So whilst I had become completely absorbed and immersed in emissions, uh, I hadn't been looking beyond uh, diesel. Now, strangely enough, when, when I had packed up all my stuff in Bobby and was moving back to the UK. And of course, you know, several times a year I'd been traveling through Eurotunnel, um, probably about every month or every two months. But the last time I left Bovey to come back to the UK on a one-way journey, I suddenly noticed that at the Eurotunnel terminal, there were something like 20 Tesla chargers had appeared since the previous visit. And I thought, well, this is getting serious. And at that point, I had no interest or knowledge of electric vehicles whatsoever. But this made a big impact on me because I thought, well, you don't do that unless they're expecting an incredible amount of Teslas and electric cars to be coming through in the future. And so when I came back to uh, Coventry, 
I started investigating. Well, why is that? And then something that should be obvious, but I hadn't realized before because I'd never looked at it, was that there are zero emissions from a, a battery vehicle or an electric vehicle. And I thought, blimey, we've been spending all this time looking at, you know, adding um, SCR, selective catalytic reduction. We've got EGR, exhaust gas recirculation. We've got particulate filters, uh, DPFs. We've fitted DOCs, diesel oxidation catalysts, twin turbos. And that's, that's on top of the previous, you know, common rails and everything else we've done. I thought, blimey. And these things don't have any emissions whatsoever. Uh, so I thought, why aren't the big tractor companies looking at it? Now, since then, you know, obviously the big tractor companies have started looking at it, but this was back in 2018. But I wasn't convinced. I mean, I've got a bit of a kind of farmer's brain, you know. I would be a bit sceptical, you know, uh, things that are theoretical and not practical. I did, a, I, did a, I did an online course with Delft University in, in Holland on electric vehicles. And there I covered technology, the commercialization of it, and also government policy. And that took about six months to complete. Uh, but still, I wasn't sure about farming. So I then, uh, over the next year or so, I visited um, Drax Power Station in, in North Yorkshire. I went to Hunterson Bay Nuclear Power Station in Scotland. Um, I went to wind farms, solar farms, uh, biodigesters, you name it, just to get my head round, will we be able to supply enough electricity so that, so that we, can, we can really use um, electric vehicles and farms? And, of course, at this point, I realised that farmers are actually in the best position possible because... Not only have they got land upon which they can they can have you know solar panels, but they've got buildings as well, and uh, the same for wind turbines. And from the other side, they've got access to uh, biomaterials from which they can they can generate um, bioenergy. Mm. So I thought that the farmers could actually be you know getting their fuel not for nothing, but if you see it, I mean. Rather than importing oil, you know, from the Middle East or whatever, yes, they can they can actually be producing the fuel themselves on the farm. But of course, they've got nothing to use it in other than a car or a electric scooter or, or whatever yes. they, they might have. Were you able to disseminate uh, from all the information that you gathered in, in all this fact finding, Campbell? Were, were there certain Path, pathways opening up that you, you thought, well, this is the way it's going to go, um, because everybody is just trying to decide what yeah. is going to be the energy of the future, particularly on farms. Well, at that time, I purely because of the the course that I had studied was, was mainly aimed at automotive, I'd kind of got my head fixed on batteries. Um, I then, at that point, I, I started up the company to to start, you know, getting serious about this subject. And I got involved with um, Coventry and Warwickshire Growth Hub, a very good project manager there or account manager uh, called Linda Savitri. And she put me in touch with Aston University. And Aston University conducted a feasibility study for me where, 
you know, I briefed them on, you know, the requirements for agriculture. And they then did a complete study on all of the possible solutions. Now, the possible solutions included a battery vehicle, biomethane-powered internal combustion engine, as New Holland have available, hydrogen-powered internal combustion engine, as JCB are, looking, are moving into. But the firm recommendation coming out of it, if you, if you don't actually have your own engine at the moment, was to look at a hydrogen fuel cell system. And the reason for that is that a battery, which is very, very efficient, okay, because you're literally generating electricity, putting it in the battery, the battery's turning a motor and the motor's turning the tractor. So it's a very efficient system and very little heat loss. Okay, unlike an internal combustion engine, which is, of course, producing masses of heat. A battery and motor doesn't produce much heat. But the issue there is that once you go above about 50 horsepower, uh, the weight of the battery becomes very, very heavy. And in fact, uh, from figures that Fent and John Deere have, have publicly made available, if it was like a 300 horsepower tractor, the battery is about 15 tons. But, um, apart from that, it takes a long time to recharge a battery. Um, it's, it's, you know, an overnight job, really. Uh, now, that isn't necessarily a problem on a farm, but it could be a deterrent. Um, yes. But the other thing, which is a major issue, is that you only get, you know, four, five, maybe maximum six operating hours from the battery, depending on, you know, what you're doing with it. And that, that of course, is, makes it suitable for smaller tractors doing light-duty jobs, you know, on a farm, but it doesn't bring it into the the sort of working tractor category where you'd be looking to get, you know, eight to ten hours from it. You'd be looking to recharge it in the same time as a diesel engine, and you'd be looking for the weight to be not much different to the weight of an engine. So the fuel cell system, a hydrogen fuel cell used in conjunction with a, a small battery, some other electrical components came up as being the, the best way forward beyond 50 horsepower. And, and what's the availability of these, these fuel cells? I mean, how do you access them? Yeah, well, uh, nobody as such makes the ideal fuel cell for a, a, an off-road vehicle like a tractor. But I've been working with some really good UK fuel cell companies. I can't really say their name because I've got them NDAs. <laughs> um, but, but let's just say that, I'll say it in this way, that the UK has actually got a few very innovative, very good, very proactive hydrogen fuel cell companies that have only started up you know, in the last um, four, five, six, seven years, and they're actually already making making some good inroads. Their focus at the moment, I think it's fair to say, is on buses and trucks. But but most of them, of course, are looking beyond that to how they can they can look into off road applications. And so I'm working quite closely with a couple of those companies at how we can develop a a hydrogen fuel cell 
not necessarily especially for a tractor, but 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 designed such that it works well within a tractor. Have you been able to trial um, the the two the hydrogen cell and the battery uh, together and and um, uh, come up with sort of a test rig or anything? Well, only only in sort of laboratory system not actually in any field applications yeah and i understand that um this is capable of powering tractors up to the equivalent of what 130 odd horsepower isn't it well the issue today with a hydrogen fuel cell system is is twofold one is the cost of the fuel cell which today is very expensive and this this is really why it hasn't commercialized at this stage and and therefore the more the the more power you go for, the more expensive it gets, right? There's no limit to what power you can get from a fuel cell. It just really depends on the number of cells in the stack. They talk about a fuel cell stack. Yes. And number of, a number of, you can double up the stacks. So you could take an 80 kilowatt system and double it up to 160 kilowatt. But once you begin today to go up in power, it begins to get quite expensive. But just to follow on in that, the the cost is expected to drop quite significantly as companies around the world get into mass production. And it is true zero emissions, is it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, The only emission is water. Basically what happens is you bring hydrogen in one side, you bring air in the other, which is oxygen. Uh, I'm going to try and say it in this way. The hydrogen tries to get together with the oxygen and and the net result is h2o which is water yeah uh, so there's only water and a little bit of heat which is produced but um absolutely no particulates matter abs because you're not burning anything uh, no uh, nitrous oxides only water indeed and, and and where can farmers themselves fit into this uh, this concept i mean obviously a number of them are are producing energy through um, by uh, anaerobic digesters and so on yeah well the most efficient way to produce hydrogen is through what you call electrolysis and for that you need a thing called an electrolyzer and basically what the electrolyzer needs it's a bit it's a bit like a fuel cell itself but it's working in the opposite way. So instead of taking hydrogen and oxygen and making water, it's taking water and splitting it into hydrogen and oxygen. So what a farmer needs is a source of electricity and a supply of water. Now, farmers are very well placed, as we said before, to produce green electricity, whether that's from solar panels uh, on their buildings, whether it's from wind turbines, and arguably, you can run a gas engine uh, from your biogas production to produce electricity as well. Although, when you mention that to the pure hydrogen people, they don't they don't really like that idea. But 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 it is how a bioenergy producer could produce electricity. Yeah. There's another way to produce hydrogen, which is called. Um, uh, bear in mind, I'm a marketing guy. I'm not. A, I'm not a technologist, but it's called. Um, steam reformation biomethane steam reformation but it's a pretty a pretty inefficient way but but the big hydrogen producers that will be appearing like there's one coming in the northeast will be taking natural gas and making it into hydrogen 
with what they call carbon capture. So they'll be removing the carbon so that it doesn't go in the atmosphere and then burying it in the ground. But from a farmer's point of view, they can produce pure green hydrogen using using their own generated electricity and water. Do you think, um, Campbell, that hydrogen will be the uh, and its variants will be the uh, energy of choice in, in across the board, or, or are we going to see a mixed energy provision? Yeah, you'll see a mixed energy provision. So, so the first thing you're going to see quite quite clearly is a huge range of alternative uh, e-fuels, they call them. So th this could be anything from, um, you know, biomethane to uh, compressed natural gas to biodiesels, etc. So in other words, there'll be fuels that are produced that are net zero in their entirety. And these will be used to power existing uh, combustion engines. And there's no question that that's going to be quite a significant proportion for the foreseeable future. The, the other one, of course, is pure electricity, which is going to be used to power battery-powered vehicles. And you, you're going to see a huge expansion in battery-powered cars, uh, motorcycles, forklifts, and all of those kind of things. But the main advantage of hydrogen is that there's no foreseeable end to its availability depending on what Mr. Putin does, you know, because if he, if he ends the world tomorrow, then, you know, we might not have <laughs> anything tomorrow available. But whereas fossil fuels have got a clear end to their life, you know, yeah. for anything, anything between 50 and 200 years, uh, depending on where you are and how much you consume. And whereas there's always a trade-off with energy crops between producing energy or producing food, Mm -hmm. Hydrogen is is seen as being a a very very high potential energy source for the long term, and of course we can imagine that in the long term everything will become even more efficient. So um, you're at this stage, mm -hmm. um, still in the development stage of atomic tractors, and incidentally, uh, atomic tractors is a very interesting name. Where, did you come up with that, or yes, I did. Yeah, I mean, when I went back to basic, you know, I studied physics at school, but um, I'd forgotten nearly all of it because you never use it too much in your career. But when I was studying the actual source of um, electricity itself. Um, it all revolves around the atom, you know, and electrons are are freely moving around the atom and therefore create an electrical current. And I clearly could see that the where I was going to be fitting in was with electricity of some form, whether that was electricity generated by a fuel cell or coming from a battery. I thought I'm going to call it atomic tractor. And whilst... You know, atomic could have some negative connotations because of the atomic bomb. I thought the I thought that really we're looking at such a radical change coming up in the in the power industry. You know, which is equivalent to when we went from horses to steam, or when we went from steam to diesel. I thought it's going to have an explosive impact on the whole world of how we see farm mechanisation. So atomic kind of fitted those two bills. 
so where are you at the moment then, Campbell, in the in the development of the company and the development of the the systems? Yeah, well, at the moment I've uh, I'm working in. Um, I think your English is probably much better than mine. So I think the plural of consortium is consortia, right? Is that right? <laughs> we'll agree on that. Yeah, I'm not quite sure, but I thought consortium. I haven't got my Rogers here at the so, moment. So um, you know, I've been working in consortia of people fuel cell guys. Um, I've been working very closely, particularly with Huddersfield University. And we've now got to the stage where we've been putting in grant applications to Innovate, Innovate UK to allow us to build the prototype versions. Um, I've also got some, some close connections with some European-based OEMs who are providing the, the base um, vehicles, which we're not planning to reuse at this stage, you know, to create a cab or a rear axle. We'll be using components already available. And basically, we're just waiting for the funding to come in place to allow us to build the, the prototype units for testing and evaluation. But we've got the, the, the technology sorted out as to what the, the system will look like. And I'm also involved with some autonomous projects as well, which would be using fuel cell technology. So it's just a question to see which one of these projects get funded first so that we can determine what will be the first prototype unit that, that we can see. It really is a conundrum at the moment. I mean, there's so many innovative systems being trialled. I mean, whether it's the hands-free Hector um, mm -hmm. uh, trialling that uh, went on at Harper Adams, which, which was which was wonderful and really good. And apart from that, it produced some gin from the barley they, they produced. Or uh, companies like the Small Robot Company and, and Robotics. Um, yeah. It's difficult to see how all this is going to integrate at the moment into the farming, of the farm of the future, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think what you'll end up seeing is it all depends on the drivers, you know, or the industry. The technology is one driver, of course, but there are other factors. Uh, labor shortage is a big driver at the moment. Uh, I was at the I was asked to present at the UK Onion and Carrot Conference, I think last November, and and of course those guys use a lot of labor, and they they've literally got issues, you know, finding labor to do the job. So. That is a big, strong driver towards autonomy and robotics. Indeed. And, and I guess also, uh, Campbell, it, it comes down to um, the willingness to adopt new te technology yes. by farmers because who yes. are, um, by definition um, or reputation, a cautious yes. lot often, but um, yes. obviously there are a lot of pioneers out there. Yeah, I think, I think it's, farming is distinctive by the fact that they're, are a small number of extremely innovative farmers, possibly more innovative than in any other industry. But equally, there are a large number of, I'm not going to call them skeptics because that's a bit negative, but they'll wait and see whether it does what it says in the tin before they jump on board. However, just, just to finish off on that point, there is so much government support and energy going into net zero that it's inescapable to think of, of moving into any other area at the moment. Nobody is going to give you any money to develop a diesel engine enhancement, I can tell you. No. Everything is going into net zero. Sure. And farmers will be, will be also encouraged in that direction.
So you don't see the demise of the internal combustion engine necessarily? Uh, not for a long time. I think that if you if you talk to the pure EV people, right, they'll they refer to them as cookers, you know, that all they do is produce heat. I can see that it's it has been and it's demonstrated to be a very effective method of you know producing rotary power. I'm not going to say efficient, I'm going to say effective. And I mean you don't get issues, for example, you know, well if you run out of if the battery goes flat, you know, what am I going to do now? So I think that there's a lot of effort going into internal combustion engine development by those who make the engines. That would include my former employees, ag employees, employers, I should say, who've come up with a new engine very recently that's that's geared up and designed to use alternative fuels. So, but I've got. So what I would probably say is, I think that you'll see internal combustion engines for for certainly the next probably thirty years. But in a hundred years, I'd be amazed if you see one. I think they'll be like a steam engine is today. They'll still exist. Yeah, there'll yeah. still be certain applications where a steam engine is used, but it'll be far from being the norm. It'll be more of a museum piece. But I'm saying, Mark, I'm saying in a hundred years. I'm not saying in the next 20 to 30 years. And where do you think you'd like to be in five years' time or 10 years? Uh... I think, look, I'm not, you know, money's not my objective, so I'm not doing this to, you know, try and make money. I'd, I'd take a great lot of pleasure and achievement in seeing an actual tractor that is working in the field that fulfilled Harry Ferguson's engineering motto. And his motto was that beauty in engineering design is that which fulfills exactly the purpose for which it was designed with no superfluous parts. <laughs> so if, if I can play a part in getting a, a hydrogen fuel cell hybrid, I'm going to call it, because it uses battery and other components, small and smart vehicle, which would kind of carry on the Harry Ferguson tradition a small and smart, I'd be a very contented man, and then I'd be happy to allow the you know the next generation to come along and improve it, perfect it, you know, and and take it to the next level. Well, I think uh, thank you ever so much, and I think uh, to end our chat on this, to channel Harry Ferguson really can't be a bad thing, can it? And uh, he, he really did laying down a marker, and it is amazing how nostalgic and sought mm. after the little grey Fergie is. And, and and actually, we may well come full circle, won't we, in terms of small vehicles and easy-to-use vehicles? I think so. And and when I sit in my uh, armchair at home, I have, a, I have a photograph of Harry Ferguson looking at me, and it was kindly presented to me... Um, as a personal gift, not for the company, but as a personal gift, we Harry Ferguson's granddaughters, and it's I sort of look up at that every night. I can never hope to emulate anything of the nature of what he did, right? But but the design principles and the the desire to improve the way things are done, I think, is coming from that direction. Fantastic. Well, look, uh, Campbell, many, many thanks for, for, for that trawl through uh, a vision and also a, uh, uh, 
going back to um, what were the origins for many people of the tractor as we know it today really and um, well thank you very much for your time it, it's been been fascinating and I wish you well in all the development uh, that's uh, ahead of you my pleasure and thank you so much indeed for the opportunity to, to to spread the message to a wider audience that's that's excellent well thank you Campbell thank you very much indeed thank you bye-bye so obviously we are only at the start of Campbell Scott's visionary journey with atomic tractors. Many factors are at play, the technology itself, funding, unit costings, and when or whether he can engage with a mainstream manufacturer. Nonetheless, it certainly is a project of considerable interest and it will be fascinating to see how it plays out in the coming months and years. So I'm Chris Biddle, Thanks for joining me, and this is Inside AgriTurf.